I wrote this sermon when I got back from Indianapolis, Indiana at the General Convention. And naturally, I was influenced by eight days uh, being there in the fever swamps of parliamentary procedure, the amendment to the amendment to the amendment. So some of what I'm going to talk about may, I hope, be uh, uh, not too incomprehensible. Each reading gives us uh, a theme that uh, was actually uh, part of what we talked about in, in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, can God work through people who have complex characters? Is it possible that we can uh, seek the unity that we're called to as being missionaries for Christ's sake? Remember, the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And how might that be affected? And finally, uh, what is the importance of the Eucharist, that thing we do every week, and how is it the animating factor in our common life together? Uh, when you go to a, a, a thing like the General Convention and you attend the Eucharist every day, uh, you begin to realize its power and effect uh, in, a, in a substantial way. And oddly enough, the reading from the Gospel about the beheading of John the Baptist and about some other things have to do with the juxtaposition of the understanding of the difference between a corrupt meal and a holy meal and why that is important uh, when we think about the, 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 the words and work of Christ. In 2 Samuel, these are good stories, I think. This is the story now of David becoming king King Saul is dead. David is married to King Saul's daughter, Michal. And he is about to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he does it in a way that is, um, shall we say, unorthodox. What we don't have in today's reading is the middle section from this, which gives you an idea of the potency of the ark as a religious symbol and how people in, uh, in positions of power can manipulate religion for their purposes. And there's some of that going on here. Remember in the ancient Near East, there is no such thing as church and state. It's one thing altogether. So King David, before this scene that we read about, here's what happens. He's ready to take the ark. Well, first I should say this. We've had David and Goliath. We've been reading from Samuel for about three or four weeks. We had the story of David and Goliath and the war with the Philistines. During that time, the Philistines captured the ark. And they marched from one horror to the next in possessing this ark. There was a plague, people were dying, they were getting struck dead, they didn't know what to do. They decided in order to please their gods, they needed to make an offering. So they made solid gold replicas of the tumors that were uh, the result of some of the plague and of the little mice that they found inside the ark they made solid gold replicas. Some biblical scholars think that what happened was is that, you know, people would put bits of food inside the ark to please 
Yahweh and the mice got in there and then it was, you know, bad for your health. In any case, the Philistines were trying to figure out how do we get rid of this ark? And it finally fell back into the hands of the Israelites. And so David is now going to take the ark into Jerusalem and put it in the tent that has been reserved for the ark. The ark will ultimately go into the temple that is now going to be built by King Solomon later. This is the beginning of what we will call Second, Second Temple Judaism. So if you read about the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of the things that uh, have come to light since 1946, this is the beginning of how all that gets started. So David sets out with this, and he has 30,000 people who are following him into Jerusalem. And he has two people attending the uh, cart that the ark is on. And one of them is mentioned in the text today, Uzzah. But in the part we don't read, they're moving the cart toward Jerusalem and the ark slips on the cart and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and is struck dead. This is not a very happy thing, is it? It's kind of a tough deal. I mean, it's like it's, it's worse than Indiana Jones. You know, I mean, it's bad. So... He decides, he, David, to wait for a few days and have a think, a big think, about what it is that we ought to do. And he waits for six days and he decides it's now safe to do this and he's going to bring the ark in. He has political responsibilities with the people that he's leading. And this potent symbol now needs to be seen to be entering Jerusalem in triumph. And so David is leading the procession. And he is wearing a linen ephod. I'm not going to get into what kind of a garment an ephod is. All I can say to you is that David leading the procession wearing a linen ephod is probably not the appropriate attire. And his wife, Michael, from a window, looks down and sees King David leading the procession and dancing wildly in a linen ephod, and she begins to cultivate contempt for him in her heart. So the soap opera is going to continue because there's strain now in that marriage. And we'll find out some things later about, you know, Bathsheba and King David and the prophet Nathan. It's quite a story. David's character now is going to be revealed. The Bible is very clear about who David is. And King David is at the same time the representative of the halcyon days of the kingdom of Israel and is also portrayed as a person that is flawed and imperfect. And the purpose of this is to remind everybody that we're all flawed and imperfect, and yet we can be faithful to God's purposes for us and for others. And so as we move forward, we know and have the confidence that God works through each of us as imperfect and complex as we are. That God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is always present in those circumstances. 
And that will mean that by the time we get to Jesus and the people who have been yearning for the Messiah, they will say this Messiah is going to embody two traits and we see them in Jesus. The kingly Messiah that we look back to in King David and King Solomon and the priestly Messiah who is going to restore the purity to the temple and is going to be now the one that combines these two, both the secular and the religious, if you will, combined into one. In Ephesians, Paul is speaking about the ways and the means by which the unity among Christian people is affected through baptism. In this part of Ephesians, many biblical scholars believe what is being reproduced here in part is an ancient baptismal hymn that was used in the liturgy at the time of St. Paul. And here's the situation on the ground. At the time of this writing in Ephesus and in many of the other churches that Paul founded, we have two distinct groups. Paul refers to one of the groups as we which is the Jewish Christians. And the other group, they, are the Gentile Christians. For Paul, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are united because they accept Christ. Some of the other Christians, particularly some of the Jewish Christians, believe that in order to be a Christian, you must also practice the Jewish law, which means all males must be circumcised, you have to keep the Sabbath, and you must observe the Jewish dietary rules. Paul says that is not necessary for Gentiles. All they must do is to believe in Christ, as must the Jewish Christians. And the unifying factor is baptism. The ways and the means that these two groups are brought together. And he uses it now as a way of affirming the importance of people with different views learning how to live and work together. That the church of God is a place where this kind of diversity in unity can and should be practiced. You know, I think we live in a situation, it's not new, it comes up from time to time. We're at a point in this country, in our public discourse, where it is all but impossible to make any forward progress of any kind because of the ideological cul-de-sacs that people on both sides of the political spectrum have found themselves in. The unwillingness to compromise. The unwillingness to be able in some way to see a way forward. That that is what does the best for the most. And instead we have a species of stubbornness that we haven't seen in a long time. And this reading is important because Paul is speaking about that. You know that the coming together of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians make the ordination of women, the blessing of same-sex relationships, all of the other controversial issues look like amateur night. In the ancient church, 
This was the issue that was on, created a situation that made the church on the verge of just blowing up completely. The very idea that this message from the Jewish Messiah could also be a message for Gentiles was unthinkable to many. Absolutely unthinkable. And so the affecting of that coming together, if you will, as scholars would say, the merger between Athens and Jerusalem was a profound development in the way in which the Christian church understood itself. And that's what Paul is reinforcing today and how important it is. In Mark's gospel, we have the story of uh, the beheading of John the Baptist, but there's a lot of background material here that is extremely important. Uh, just to focus ourselves, the main Herod here is Herod Antipas. One of his sons is named Herod. The other son-in-law was also named Herod, but in the story he's called Philip. Philip was married to Herodias, the young woman in this story. And John the Baptist had told him that it was not proper for him to have married his brother-in-law's wife. And as the result of that, uh, he had incurred, he, John the Baptist, the wrath of Herodias. Herod, the main Herod, Antipas, however, liked John the Baptist and loved to listen to him. I don't know how that could be true in one sense because he certainly had plenty to say about the leadership of the client king of the Roman Empire, Herod Antipas. So here's the scene on the ground. It's a meal. This is reproduced by Mark to demonstrate the corrupt nature of the, of the family of King Herod. It is a sordid affair. It is offensive to pious Jews to have a young princess come into this part of the meal in, Hellen in the Hellenistic world, which influenced that part of the, of the Near East. Men would lie on couches after dinner and drink wine and recite poetry. And you know the word for that, you may have heard in our own day, symposium. That's what it's called, a symposium. So they were having a symposium. And in the midst of the symposium, in comes Herodias and performs a lewd and lascivious dance in front of the men. Herod, who was in all probability in his cups, says, I'll give you anything you want. I'll even give you half my kingdom. So she's a young girl and she runs out and she says to her mother, what shall I ask for? And he says, the head of John the Baptist. So she comes back in and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he's now embarrassed because he's got to say yes. He promised. He made a foolish promise. But he's in front of all of his friends. The leadership of Galilee. All of the assistant kings. All of these people. And so he says, okay, I'll, I'll yes. And they behead John the Baptist and bring his head on a platter. Now Mark reproduces this because this has something to do with how we understand the relationship between a corrupt 
ceremonial meal and a holy meal. So in the ordering and the editing of this gospel, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have this story and it's going to be followed by some successive meals that Jesus presides over. The first one is the feeding of the multitude, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus demonstrates God's abundance and inclusion. Men, women, children, everybody are fed together and there is no lack. It is a testimony that God's abundance can meet lack. It is a, a testimony that God's abundance can meet other people's needs. The next meal will be a meal where Jesus eats with outcasts and sinners, which is a testimony that God and the person of Jesus Christ in, wishes to include everyone, even those who suffer social opprobrium in any age and finally, after another couple of these, he's going to celebrate the penultimate meal, which is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, before he is crucified. And it is the testimony of the progression of the church's understanding that we move now through a succession of meals reflecting God's abundant transformative character to the meal now that we have been commanded to repeat all the time. In 1946, a book was written by an Anglican Benedictine monk named Dom Gregory Dix. It's famous in scholarly circles. I had to read it when I was in seminary in 1975. I was in Rome on a scholarship from the Episcopal Church Foundation and we heard lectures from the prominent liturgical scholars who wrote the liturgical changes for the Second Vatican Council. And I was literally amazed at the number of times in their lectures they quoted from Gregory Dix's book. It was incredible. Since then, some of his conclusions have been superseded by other scholarship but he has a quotation in this book about the centrality of the Eucharist that I want to read to you because it's one of the great quotations in the literature about the history of the liturgy. So bear with me as I conclude with this. Jesus had told his friends to do this henceforward with the new meaning for the memory of him. And they have done it always since. Was ever another command so obeyed? For century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country, and among every race on earth, this action has been done. In every conceivable human circumstance, for every conceivable human need, from infancy and before it to extreme old age and after it, from the pinnacles of earthly greatness to the refuges of fugitives in caves and the dens of the earth. People have found no better thing than this to do for kings at their crowning, 
and for criminals going to the scaffold, for armies in triumph, or for a bride and a bridegroom in a little country church, for the proclamation of a dogma, or for a good crop of wheat, for the wisdom of the parliament of a mighty nation, or for a sick old woman afraid to die, for a schoolboy sitting in examination, or for Columbus setting out to discover America, for the famine of whole provinces, or for the soul of a dead lover, in thankfulness because my father did not die of pneumonia, for a village headman, much tempted to return to fetish because the yams have failed, because the Turk was at the gates of Vienna, for the repentance of Margaret, for the settlement of a strike, for a son for a barren woman, for Captain so-and-so wounded in prisoner of war, while the lions roared in the nearby amphitheater, on the beach at Dunkirk, while the hiss of sides in the thick June grass came faintly through the windows of the church, tremulously by an old monk on the 50th anniversary of his vows, furtively by an exiled bishop who had hewn timber all day in a prison camp near Murmansk, gorgeously for the canonization of Joan of Arc. One could fill many pages with the reasons why people have done this and not tell a hundredth part of them. And best of all, week by week and month by month, on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully, unfailingly across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done this just to make the pleb sancta Dei the holy common people of God. So give thanks for the gift of the Holy Eucharist. See if you can um, loosen up your ideological commitments a little bit this week. Give thanks for the unifying presence of the Holy Spirit of God in each of us. And let's work to make it have good effect. Amen. Amen.